What is remarkable to me is just how much you know the software game has changed, and I think we have such better tools to think with these days. I mean, I think the way people think about like customer acquisition and customer retention is light years beyond the tools and techniques that、uh, we used. This is amazing to me, you know, how much good thinking has been done in terms of really systematizing that and using the scientific method to essentially do experiments to get really, really good at you know creating good customers. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready podcast, I'm joined by Gene Kim, co-founder and former CTO of Tripwire, and author of seminal works such as The Phoenix Project, The DevOps Handbook, Accelerate, and The Unicorn Project. We start off by getting a bit of Gene's background and the path that led him to co-found Tripwire. We then dive pretty deep into his time at Tripwire, which spanned 13 years, discussing the lessons learned and frameworks he developed while at the company. Next, we find out what got Gene into writing, researching, and helping to accelerate the proliferation of DevOps within so many organizations. We conclude with a bit of a philosophical discussion on the future of technology adoption and its positive social impacts, based on some historical precursors that Gene highlights. For me, this was a super interesting conversation. I just hope that you enjoy it too. All right, Gene, thanks so much for joining. Oh, so great to be here, Grant, and、uh, delighted to be on. Great. So let's kind of jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I.、Uh Been studying high-performing technology organizations since 1999, and that was a journey that started back when I was the founder of a company called Tripwire in the information security and compliance space. And so, back then, our goal was to understand, you know, how these amazing organizations had the best project due date performance and development, the best operational stability and reliability in ops, as well as the best posture of security and compliance. So the goal was to understand how did those amazing organizations make their good to great transformation, so that other organizations could replicate their amazing outcomes. So I was at Tripwire for 13 years, and the biggest surprise is how you know this work has really pulled me into the middle of the DevOps movement, which I think is so urgent and important. And you know, name any software company that、uh, isn't being affected by the new practices and principles and patterns that allow us to do things that you know were just impossible 10, 20 years ago. The notion of doing tens, hundreds, or even hundreds of thousands of deployments per day, <laughs> which you know is、uh, certainly better than doing one. Deployment or release per year, and, and you know, there's no doubt in my mind that doing that not only gets us better value sooner, safer, and happier, it allows us to win in the marketplace. Cool. Okay. So you mentioned you kind of started that at Tripwire, right? A company that you helped found. Can you just dive a little bit in the backstory of Tripwire? Yeah, for sure. So we created the company in 1997.、Uh, that I was actually based on a program that I wrote when I was an undergraduate student at Purdue University. I was、uh, working for a professor named Dr. Gene Spafford, and、uh, he was actually the whole reason why I went to Purdue in the first place. I was working、uh, in high school at Sun Microsystems as a Part-time QA engineer, part-time sysadmin, and that was around that time. 1988 is when the Morris Worm hit. So November 2nd, 1988, you know, the Morris Worm took down 10% of all the servers on the internet, and I think the number is about you know 60,000 servers at the time. <laughs> so I mean, wow, you know, 6,000 servers impacted, and so it was actually the the first real kind of、uh, massive you know attack of the category we had seen. So what really I, I was. Riveted by it, I read everything I could, and the person who was doing the most amount of publishing on it was、uh, this guy, Dr. Gene Spafford, and that's actually why I went to Purdue in the first place. And I, I think I, I didn't know it was really in the cornfields of Indiana. I, I think even if I had known, I would have still gone there. But that, that was kind of a rude shock. 
but it was just it was such a rewarding time and and so that uh, rapidly became one of the most widely used security tools for unix and so think back to you know the late 90s that's the time of the dot com boom it's the rise of e-commerce before the dot com crash and so this is when things like PCI. The predecessor of PCI was called, uh, I think it was called CISP from Visa. Mastercard had one, and this is when you started having the first data security standards for what you had to do to secure cardholder data. Mm, interesting. So that was uh, really pointed to the need for you know some sort of commercial offering to be able to secure uh, data at rest. So that was the reason why I had created the company. Okay, so where did you grow up? It sounds like not Indiana. Right. I actually grew up in Minnesota and then I uh, was in high school, was in Colorado. And that's when I had this amazing opportunity to work half time in high school, uh, working at a company that was then acquired by Sun Microsystems. And so that was just an amazing glimpse into you know, what it was like to work around great engineers and get exposed to infrastructure and operating system administration and networking. And you know, I think that those are certainly very formative experiences you know, throughout my whole career. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So you're doing that in high school and then and this bug and you went to Purdue to spend time with this professor. And so you wrote the initial version of Tripwire while still in college with this professor? Or what's the Right, that was an independent study project and you know, I remember writing it in C, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, that was all publicly available, um, open source. Okay. Back before that was really a, kind of a well-defined construct. And so at Tripwire, then my, you know, my first job was essentially hiring up the team to write the first commercialized offerings, building out that organization, uh, headed up the marketing organization, uh, despite having a very unsophisticated layman's view of the whole practice. But yeah, so you know how it is in the early days where it was just an amazing adventure being a part of every process in the company. And uh, what a relief it was to hand that off to you know, professional engineering managers who actually knew what they're doing. <laughs> So I guess like that project that you created had it gotten some adoption after you wrote it in college, or what was the impetus? I mean, because there's a few years between you wrote this and then you started the company, right? Yeah. So the way we released software back then is you posted the source code on uh, the Usenet newsgroups. So on okay. comp.sources.unix, I think is where it, uh, where we published it, and by 1997, uh, it had become the most widely used Unix security tool. You know, for defenders to administer the systems. Oh, interesting. So, you know, that was definitely a benefit and advantage we had, being able to leverage the fact that you know so much of the market already knew about Tripwire, and uh, you know, does. Uh, I can't remember who said this, but it's uh, obscurity is difficult to monetize. <laughs> so, you know, the opposite is that you know when people kind of associate Tripwire with being a good, responsible system administrator or security administrator, right? Yeah, you know, that was a phenomenal advantage in the early days of the company. And you'd probably had, you know, you mentioned like at least an internship before, you know, companies you'd been at. Did you have like a real, like, I'm going to quote unquote, a real job before you founded Tripwire? No, before the Tripwire experience, my primary uh, experiences were either full time engineering, uh, to some part marketing and sales support, but uh, never at the scale of a startup that was solely focused on, you know, software selling to enterprises. Well, yeah. And then, this is like the height of the dot com sort of like you know rise, right? So I'm guessing there was probably like a lot of venture capital or scale up. Like how how did they, what were those early days like? Oh yeah, so uh, my co-founder uh, was uh, Wyatt Starnes, and he was he was superb at raising money. And I think uh, you know we all agreed by 2004 we had raised way too much money. And so these numbers sound so small compared to what's being done these days, but. You know, back then, I mean, I think we all uh, look back and say, "Holy cow!" With the fact that we raised fifty-five million dollars was, you know, way too much. And we had uh, it was one of those cycles where you raise money, you run out of money, and you, in order to raise more money, you had to raise the sales forecasts. <laughs> you, know, you repeat that a couple of times, and you have there's no hockey stick that you can grow into to justify you know the valuations that you're posting. And one of the most amazing things in the company history was on two thousand four. Where we had a new CEO come in, and uh, he was, his name was uh, this was Jim Johnson. Yeah, he was such a remarkable leader. He was the site manager for all of Intel in Oregon, and it sounds like a very humble title, but essentially he was the operational leader for basically all the non PNL functions uh, for the entire state of Oregon for I think what uh, six to twelve thousand people. So I mean, he was uh, operating at very high levels of uh, the company. 
And so for him to come in and really look around, essentially he had one goal for the company and uh, that was to make a buck. <laughs> so, so funny. And it was amazing that within, I think it's like six months after he came in, we made our first profit. I mean, it wasn't much, right? I think it was like, uh, I can't remember if it was 10000 or $50,000, but it was the one milestone that you know, stands out in my head is something that I was so proud to be a part of. The fact that it really, you know, cross-functional focus and the operational discipline to get rid of all these bad habits we had acquired in the previous years and really show that we could be self-sustaining. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so when you raise a lot of money, you get these lucite plaques, right? And, you know, it got to the point where I didn't have enough room for these, you know, lucite plaques, right, from all the investment <laughs> bankers. It's kind of a bad situation when you're the investment banker's best friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's not a situation you want to be in. Uh, the one Lucite plaque that uh, I still am very proud of is, you know, we made a buck, right? That was given out to every one of the uh, company employees. Oh, funny. And, and you know, your role at Tripwire, I mean, from sort of the founder, co-founder, CTO, were you managing large teams? Were you primarily focused on product and technology? What, what were your focuses, I guess, in the beginning? And then it probably changed over time, but... Yeah, at various points in the early in the organization, I was leading the engineering function. And so you know, by the time we brought in a professional engineering leader, uh, that was by about 30, 35 people. And then uh, for a while, was helping run the marketing function. And then I loved the idea of being a individual contributor. And so for the vast majority of my time at Tripwire, I really divided up my role into three parts. One was do whatever it took to uh, help the sales organization, you know, do whatever they need to do to win deals. And the second one was do whatever I could to help elevate uh, the visibility of the company and myself. And then third is uh, work internally with engineering leadership and uh, product leadership to help create a long-term roadmap. And so uh, that was definitely much easier earlier uh, in the company. Up until, uh, I think for me, the dividing line was about 180 people, where I think after 180 people, Operating as a individual contributor just got a lot harder. <laughs> it felt like the, you know, by the time you got the senior directors in, uh, it's just the surface area of influence just became so much wider, and it just got a lot harder to do things that I wanted to do. Uh, my ability to influence the organization was uh, a lot smaller. So that's something I didn't uh, really understand at the time. You know, uh, people who I studied, uh, who, who I think have done it better, kind of after the, you know, 150, 180 group was uh, someone like Tim Kianini. He's now a distinguished engineer at Cisco. Uh, when he was at Encircle, um, you know, he uh, migrated from the CTO role to heading up professional services and customer success, which I thought was like a really great idea just because, you know, his contribution was certainly looked like an individual contributor, but he really had the voice of the customer, right? Uh, he knew what was happening, like, uh, you know, he was having to deal with all the consequences of promises made to organizations to get the deal, <laughs> right? He felt that through professional mm -hmm. services, right? And his customer success, right? Uh, and uh, product management. I mean, uh, he was increasingly in a point where, you know, he owned the roadmap. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, ways that um, now, almost 20 years later, <laughs> I would have I've done that uh, differently. And, you know, boy, it's another kind of an interesting reflection I've had lately is, you know, 150, 180, that is around Dunbar's number where, you know, you can, the scientific um, definition is, you know, what is the number of people you can actually have regular interactions with? And it's around 150, mm -hmm. 200 people. And, you know, that's around in organizations. And, you know, when you have kind of hierarchical management structures, which, typically do need to exist. You know, that's where you have to introduce kind of the, the senior directors between the VPs and the directors. <laughs> and then, you know, suddenly if you want to influence things, right, uh, you have to work with a lot more people. So I think that's where the, the ability to influence widely definitely gets more difficult. Yeah, interesting. And so when you left, how many employees were there at that point? I think around 350 uh, okay. around 2010. Yeah. I mean, that's a long run. That's a, you know, it's a good amount of time to stay with one company. And I'm sure it was... Uh, a lot of learning throughout that time and a lot of growth and interesting sort of problems. I mean, really, you were, realistically, that was very, it's kind of the foundation of sort of modern cybersecurity, right? Like one of the foundational companies. Yeah, and I have so much gratitude for my time there. I mean, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, certainly learned a lot and uh, there were times that were more fun than others, but, you know, how can you look back at 13 years, uh, I look back at it with a sense of uh, pride of achievement and you know gratitude for all the people I worked with. And it, it is what allowed me to actually work full-time uh, after I left in 2010 on the Phoenix Project and work so closely with the early DevOps movement. Which, you know, that has been one of the most rewarding things I've ever worked on. And so 
yeah, my whole Tripwire experience, I uh, have nothing but gratitude and admiration for the people I worked with. And you know, I guess the, the one thing I, I know you love frameworks and there are people who have done yeah, for you know, sure. thinking on this. And I think kind of what is remarkable to me is just how much you know the software game has changed. And I think we have such better tools to think with these days. I mean, I think the way people think about like customer acquisition and customer retention is light years beyond the tools and techniques that uh, we used. And I'm not saying that we were the best in the game. In fact, in some ways we were sort of country bumpkins, right? In terms of uh, how some of our competitors were. But uh, I remember my friend Luke Knees at Puppet. Uh, you know, he was a founder and uh, you know, left, I think, last two years. But uh, he had invited me to a meeting where he had invited uh, Kenny Van Zant. So he was one of the early executives at Solar Winds, and uh, now he's at Asana. And you know, he was talking about how they did a specific part of the Solar Winds process, right? And uh, he was just describing how you know they looked at the download counts and they measured, you know, we're continually measuring how many of them actually resulted in activation. <laughs> and like I remember just hearing that, and I was, I was thunderstruck, right? Because one of the things that uh, we were challenged with as we were going through our S one filing process to go through an IPO in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, was you know it looked like uh, it didn't look like it was a fact, right? That our cost of sales and marketing was twice as high as organizations like Solar wins. Right, so in other words, uh, you know, I think our cost of sales and marketing at that time was around 60%, mm. right? which left, say, 20% for R&D, say 15% for G&A, right? and you know, that leaves 5% for profit, which was better than it was, right? but you know, there were organizations like SolarWinds that were, you know, had cost of sales and marketing half of ours. <laughs> and so yeah, I think uh, yeah, at the strategic levels, you were always thinking, all right, we've got to do something about it. But one of the things that happened in organizations is, you know, the, the phenomena of postponement is just never a good year, <laughs> right? It's, mm. you know, it's a, we're, we're in a recession, not a good time. Uh, you know, we're potential acquisition offer on the table, right? That we don't want to, you know, do anything too disruptive, right? It's just never a good time. And so you kick the can down another year down the road. So when, when hearing the story from Kenny Van Zandt, I, I can't describe the, the expression on my face. I mean, I think the feeling was, oh my gosh, I could have, reached out to him in 2008 and said, hey, I'm going to be in Austin. You know, could I take you out for a beer? And I'd just love to brainstorm about you know, what, what does the inbound funnel look like? <laughs> it was just, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was 2011 or 2012 when I heard this. And it was just this aha moment of you know, how methodical people were being about you know, the customer activation rates and customer acquisition rates and tying that into the uh, inbound you know, how do you tie the marketing function to sales, right? I mean, it was just uh, a revelation. And so it's just amazing to me, you know, how much good thinking has been done in terms of really systematizing that and using the scientific method to essentially do experiments to get really, really good at, you know, creating good customers. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you kind of mentioned it earlier too, which is just generally in the software ecosystem, we've taken a lot of these best practices and we've, Turn them into like you know from patterns into tools that we can use, right? And so you know now there's probably you know a tool out there that helps you do these kind of customer acquisition and funnel analysis. And there's you know obviously DevOps tools. And so it's interesting to think about how likely some of these things that we just all take for granted now <laughs> were novel and like you know one-off projects inside of companies. Yeah, in fact, I mean, here's one that I, I wish, so that that was certainly one aha moment that I've had that I certainly wish I had learned much earlier. There's <laughs> no doubt that would have had a material impact you know, on the fortunes of the company. Uh, the other one that really blew my mind was uh, when I was hanging out with some friends at Rally Software. And this was must have been 2013, 2014. So it was before their acquisition uh, by CA. And I got invited to what they call the quarterly steering meeting. And I mean, it too was a revelation. In the same way, I was thunderstruck and in awe of uh, what Kenny Van Zandt was saying. It was uh, this was an opportunity to attend this quarterly ritual that Rally has had at the time, and uh, uh, it was amazing. Uh, the CEO of the company went and gave a state of the company. All of the leaders, you know, middle managers, uh, team leads were there. 
And, uh, you know, it was a state of the company, kind of a presentation on strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. You know, each functional part of the organization kind of gave a report out. Uh, and then they really engaged the leadership of the team, you know, talking about like, uh, here's options that uh, we see. Here's advice we would give to top leadership. Uh, here's cautions. I mean, it was just this incredible, vibrant problem solving that, you know, took part over three quarters of a day, right? And uh, you know, then leadership came back and essentially, you know, went, more than just, I heard you, right? Here's how we're going to integrate it into the plan going forward. And I compare this to, I think so many of us, we have these kind of quarterly business review meetings that are just, uh, I have friends who have been through it that, you know, it's like a big waste of time, right? All the decisions have been made, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? It's in some ways kind of a big charade. And it was, uh, it was in such stark contrast to what I saw that uh, Rally did. And they actually invited their customers to it. I mean, it was just brilliant. And it was just uh, the, the level of problem-solving and engagement uh, you know, throughout the leaders among the entire company was just dazzling. And I learned later that uh, so much of that uh, actually came from work with uh, Dean Leffingwell, who created the uh, Scaled Agile, uh, sorry, Safe, which has been productized by Scaled Agile. Mm. And so you know, some people you know, like to poo-poo it, but I mean, there is no doubt that you know, those forms, that philosophy, you know, that level of engagement you know, throughout the company, I mean, that's, uh, that's incredible, right? And so you might lose some of it when you read the, you know, the Safe book, but to see it in action is something that is just incredible to see. And again, one of those things that you know, I think if uh, any organization who adopts that and has the ability and bravery to do that in front of their customers, right? I mean, that will create better decisions <laughs> and, uh, again, could materially impact the fortunes of the company. Yeah, that's interesting. There's so many of those like companies that are doing different things now in terms of how they run. And as we all go remote, we're learning so much about how you know WordPress and GitLab and these folks have been doing it for a while. So mm-hmm. we're fortunate that there's enough companies out there doing things differently and then sharing what they're up to that I think allows us to all get better. And I think we're also lucky there's just a sort of general continuous desire to improve, right? Like you saw these things and you were like, I want this now. And you, <laughs> you know, you go implement part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. I want this too. But there was also, you know, as I was like describing, what did I feel like? It, it was sort of the exhilaration of seeing something truly dazzling. And then part of it was anguish. <laughs> the feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm learning this too late, right? This uh, sense of almost remorse or like, uh, you know, you're kicking yourself that you didn't uh, learn this earlier. So it's a kind of a complicated set of emotions when you see something. Whenever you see someone who's the best in the game doing what they do, right? I think uh, there's often that feeling of admiration. But it, when it's something that you did as well, right? That's actually a vocation that uh, you know you chose to <laughs> as a vacation as part of it. It's like, oh man, I'm so bad compared to these people. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, I totally agree, and I get it. You're like, how did I not know this? I, <laughs> I've been doing this too, but how have I missed this? So obvious to everybody else. I think it's a common feeling for particularly for founders because it's like. You know, we're out there, we're doing our thing, and then and then everything feels like so urgent, right? As soon as you learn about it, you're like, I want to implement it right away. Like, I, yeah. this could be changing my company. Like, you've sort of already procrastinated on the idea by not having had the idea, you know, <laughs> four years ago, right? right. Like, oh, should have been doing this from day one. Yes, and I do think kind of like my main lesson that I learned out of Tripwire is that you have to hang out with the best in the game. Right, I mean, I think there's that uh, famous quote: "You like you are the average of the top five people you hang out with." Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's uh, it's spirituality and uh, health and fitness and uh, you know so much of it is actually formed by the people you associate with, and, and so I, I think the the more you hang out with really great people, right, the more you actually just by almost osmosis you pick up like really great ideas, right, and hopefully uh, you're reciprocating as well. And you think that's like just in terms of networking or hiring? How do you think about it? Oh, all of the above, right? I mean, so I think uh, like if I were a founder, and I think this is something that Luke Kniez did really well. Um, in fact, I was dazzled by just how he set the bar so high in terms of uh, his board of directors. And I think in anything that I do these days, I try to find who, who are really good at it. <laughs> and I think the real uh, trick is to find people where you are, you have these relationships that are mutually exothermic, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, there's a famous Tim Ferriss saying, right? Is uh, you always give before you get. Mm. And so I think kind of the gift of uh, the really good networkers are the ones who are always helping other people and they've just integrated so much into how they show up and how they interact with people. And so when you're looking for the best in the game, right, uh, you're actually doing a lot of planning and there's a lot of intentionality so that 
you know, you show up as someone who can help them, <laughs> right? And often that will elicit the reaction of like, oh, what can I do for you, right? And uh, you know, the fact that you're even having that conversation, right? There's no better thing to hear than that. Yeah, no, I love that. I have a similar concept that I always called startup karma, which was like you have to like do a bunch of great stuff for other people. And then like eventually, just because you're doing that stuff, like people help you out as well. It's just like how the ecosystem works. Right, absolutely. And I, it's my personal observation, and this sounds COVID, right? It's the people who learn the most, most quickly are the ones who are faring better. And the ones who are learning the most quickly are the ones who have already established uh, the best networks. And, and so I, I'm definitely a believer in that. I mean, for the last 10 years, I mean, I think that mode of operating, that mode of thinking, and that mode of doing just pays off in spades. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, let's think about, you know, maybe like kind of back to building products, right? And building things in Tripwire. Were there any features, like enterprise features that you delivered that you just thought were so valuable and they enabled customer adoption or something? For sure. I'll start by telling you the story that what led up to it. And it's actually one of the worst professional moments of my entire career. Oh, perfect. <laughs> like, That's what we want. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 2006. And uh, it was for the first time in my career, I'm actually watching one of our customers use our product. And I'm there with uh, Tom Good, one of our senior engineers. And it was like the worst morning of my life. I mean, it was terrible. It was uh, watching this administrator struggle with our product. And you know, one routine operation that we expected people to do once a week took 62 clicks. Right, And the whole time he was apologizing, saying, oh, I know there's a better way to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, there wasn't. I mean, I wish I could have said, nope, there's no better way to do this because we are uncaring people who care nothing about people like you. <laughs> just, and this kind of triggered this uh, a set of kind of interviews where we're looking at, you know, we're asking our best customers, like, could we uh, we'll just watch you, you know, do routine operations with it? Mm. And someone was telling us about how to set up, you know, our product for, you know, a thousand plus servers. It took them like 1,300 steps, uh, you know, because they had to start over three times. <laughs> it was just, when that happens, right, I literally felt like I was going to throw up. You feel like such a bad person that you're inflicting the suffering on people, right? And this is just like one person, right? If you have, you know, uh, thousands of customers, right, it was, uh, you know, you're really inflicting suffering on people. And it was kind of over the next couple of weeks, you know, I started to understand why the role of the tripwire administrator was always given to the most junior person because no one, <laughs> no one wanted to do it. Um, and let me express this by saying, right, you know, it's not like that anymore because we ended up creating a team that really started the UX practice inside of Tripwire. So this is like uh, mm. in 2008, it was uh, three of us, uh, a product manager, Tom and I, we went to Cooper University. We got trained just at least in the fundamentals of uh, UX, you know, how to design products that uh, don't hurt people. <laughs> and, and that became like a three-year, I almost want to use the word crusade, right? It was uh, to try to figure out how to make our product more usable. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done because you're always in competition with, you know, features that the sales force wanted or that customers wanted. And, you know, we felt like this was even more important than that, right? Is that, you know, you needed to have something that was less painful. It was always in competition with major initiatives or, you know, features that, you know, we needed to save a deal. And yet, you know, despite all those challenges, you know, I think we were able to move the needle in terms of, you know, addressing some of these usability issues in the product and, uh, you know, changing the way that we develop software. So uh, that was uh, really, in, in some ways, it isn't a feature <laughs> like you're describing. It really is more of a philosophy of how, how do we fill in this hole that we had created for ourselves and our customers <laughs> and, and reshape, you know, how we did product management and engineering so that we wouldn't create these jagged edges that customers would get hurt on <laughs> you know, uh, you know, every week. Yeah, yeah. There is something there about like usability, right? Like just usability as a feature. It's an interesting insight, right? Where we often lose sight. I, I always say you have to take beginner's mind and kind of go back to the beginning and be like, imagine I don't know anything about this product and I come to it. Or imagine I'm doing this work every day. So really taking that mind, watching users use it, and then just sort of being blown away by how challenging it is. But then you fixed it is the most valuable part of it, right? You you got in there and you delivered a better experience, I assume, right? Yeah, oh, for sure, right? And I think you know they have that meme, right? It's like uh, you have Google, right? It's one field on a blank screen, and then you have your average enterprise app, right? What mm -hmm. looks like uh, you know every widget you know crammed into uh, one screen, like that. That was what it used to look like, <laughs> and and so for us to gradually migrate to something that you know had usability 
and UX and readopted things like personas and you know, context scenarios and so forth. I mean, I think it brought a level of uh, sophistication that I think is much more widespread these days. But that was a real eye opener for our team at the time. Yeah. And I think what I, I find so interesting is I'm also grateful for that experience because you know, as you talk about customer acquisition and retention, I mean, so much of it is about usability. It's about can you discover it? Is it in line with goals that they actually uh, value? You know, it can be as simple as you know topography or copy changes, right? Uh, and so I think that is as important, you know, as the specific technology that you're building, right? Is you know, do you understand the user goals well enough, right, to really build something that you know they want to use? So yeah, I think in these days of consumer software, where things like Facebook, Google, and they, they have definitely mastered this. Fifteen years ago, <laughs> you know, that was some, that was absolutely something that we were struggling to not even get mastery of. It's just just have some skills in it. Sure. Yeah. Now you kind of have the consumerization, right, of enterprise, and that's been it's made a lot of software much more usable. You know, in sort of modern enterprise software. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I think the other thing that I gravitate towards is uh, just developer productivity. Mm. And I think this is something that we did not as well in the early days of Tripwire. In fact. Uh, more war stories from the, the past. I mean, I remember, I think it must have been around 2004, we had a cruise control server that ran all our uh, builds and automated tests. And one day it just broke. <laughs> and so, so for, uh, you know, I think a year, you know, we had a bunch of engineers saying, you know, we need to get this fixed, right? We have to open up a rec to hire an engineer just to get cruise control working again. And I think I was definitely part of the faction that said, uh, no, <laughs> I, I just didn't see it as being very valuable because uh, we need to hire developers to work on features. <laughs> and what mm. I didn't understand until uh, you know, probably 2010, 2011, I'm hanging out with Jez Humble, who wrote the Continuous Delivery book. Uh, he was a co-author on the DevOps Handbook. He was a collaborator with uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren on the State of DevOps Research. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was uh, telling me about you know, how important continuous builds and continuous tests are. And yeah, I just remember laughing, you know, taking notes, and uh, you know, because it was so hilarious what he was describing. And then I stopped laughing. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is not funny at all. The problem he's talking about is what happened to us in 2004, <laughs> and I, I totally missed it. And I think uh, what's so interesting to me these days is that, you know, I think in most organizations, you know, you put your best developers on features, and then you put your next best developers on, you know, backend APIs, and then you put your least talented uh, developers on the build systems and dev productivity tools. That's where you put your summer interns. <laughs> and what's amazing to me is if you look at Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. It's the other way around. They put their most senior, most experienced engineers on dev productivity tools. In fact, uh, this is often where you'll find the people with PhDs that mm-hmm. you know have a background in static code analysis and so forth. And then the next tier is the backend APIs, and then you put the most junior people on features. <laughs> so I, th- I think it's uh, the hidden killer of so many software organizations, and you know, whether it's an enterprise or in software companies, is that you get killed by a thousand cuts. You get in a situation where technical debt slowly creeps into the system and suddenly you hire an engineer and they can't do builds you know, in the first two weeks. Uh, they can't run tests reliably. They can't deploy themselves. And we know that these are things that have to be integrated into everyone's daily work. And because they don't have those productivity tools or infrastructure that developers use, because they've been neglected, right? No one can. So that's, in fact, I mean, that's what the Unicorn Project is all about. It's the Phoenix Project retold from a, a senior developer's perspective and when she gets exiled into the, the Phoenix Project, you know this amazing engineer at the height of her entire profession can't do builds, can't write tests, can't run tests, can't deploy. <laughs> right? She's like entirely stuck, unable to do anything by herself. <laughs> it means that you can't onboard developers. It means uh, developers are not being productive. And so I think that is something that happens in way too many software companies and, and enterprise organizations, even more so. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think that you've you've had a hand in this, but I think that's changing a bit in terms of like there's definitely more interest in DevOps than there was 15 years ago, and I think people see the value of tool building and of creating these processes and you know, we look at things like the container ecosystem and Kubernetes, like there's definitely a pretty strong super smart ecosystem of folks that are focused on how do we write tools to make it easier to build reliable software. Oh, for sure. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of where we should be. You know, if you look at uh, Google, they have 1500 developers focused on dev productivity. 
So that's a billion dollars a year of annual spend just on making internal developers more productive. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, right? It's about three to five percent of uh, you know the total engineering workforce. Uh, Microsoft is probably twice as high, three to five thousand developers working on dev productivity. And uh, so I would say, rule of thumb, in my opinion, it's not based on research, but it's kind of just based on my observation, is that you know somewhere between three to five percent of engineers should be working on making other developers more productive, so that you know they can spend their best energy solving the business problem. You know, I think in the world of Kubernetes, right? I think the worst thing that we can do to developers is make them learn Kubernetes, right? I mean, I can personally attest to like how difficult it is to write. Kubernetes deployment files and like having to learn, you know, the the vast surface area of Kubernetes. I mean, it's an engineering miracle. It is amazing, but you know that is so distant from the problems I want to be working on. <laughs> and so I've gotten very fussy in terms of there's certain searches I just never want to do in Google or Stack Overflow, right? Because it says to me I'm sort of spending my time in the wrong place. And so, you know, that would be my unsolicited advice to any engineering organization: is like, are we forcing our developers to work on things and struggle with things that are distant from the business problem, like logging, infrastructure, Kubernetes, <laughs> and so forth. Right? That should be provided by some sort of platform team. Yeah, uh, It should be abstracted away so that they can work on things that customers actually care about. Yeah, I mean, the idea of a platform team, I think, has become fairly popular, um, particularly in larger organizations, right? Providing the platform, providing all those sort of like infrastructure that you need in order to allow people to write software. So. No, for sure. One more question about your time at Tripwire before we dive into sort of some of your, you know, the Phoenix project and things you've been doing. What about like, you know, sort of, we talked about the most valuable feature, which was, you know, usability. What about one of the hardest features to deliver? Like, what was, what was really tough that you did at Tripwire? Yeah, I would answer the same way. It was usability, mm. right? Because it wasn't to oversimplify it. You know, the features that get chosen is because as a, a market opportunity, you know, deals that were associated with it or a category that we could enter if we had it. And, and so those are easier to attach a dollar value to. And things like usability, uh, essentially we're kind of fixing the sins from the past. <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't as easy to quantify. And I think kind of these days with the vocabulary of, you know, customer success and retention, customer satisfaction, I mean, I think those more contemporary measures would help kind of elevate the need for it. But back then, right, it's so difficult to argue for it. And so I would I would put those usability features as also, you know, the toughest to deliver, even though it doesn't look like uh, a classic feature. Cool. Great. And then let's talk about sort of your I'll call it your second career, right? So <laughs> how did you, you know, get into writing and speaking? Yeah, I, I think looking back, or maybe it'll be from the current standpoint, I currently self-identify as a researcher and an author. I mean, uh, that's the work I love to do most. Actually, let me put a third thing, and a coder. <laughs> and, uh, so on a good month, I spend 50% of the time writing, 50% of the time hanging out with the best in the game, and you know, 20% coding, um, working on problems that uh, I want to solve. And I think that's actually, you know, it goes back probably at least 15 years. I wrote my first book in 2004 called The Visible Ops Handbook, and the subtitle was how to create world-class organizations using ITIL. <laughs> and so some people might laugh at that. Um, but you know, you know, ITIL was better than what we had, right? It was a, <laughs> it was a great way to you know, explain the critical processes that had to happen in operations, uh, far better than you know, anything else that existed at the time. But you know, I, I loved the, the kind of the mental focus of writing and uh, codifying and categorizing and the notion of methodology creation. My first work in sort of benchmarking organizations um, was actually during that time. So, kind of, so I, I learned so many things that I then brought into uh, the work around the state of DevOps report. Uh, that I mentioned that with uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jess Humble, where you know we benchmarked thirty thousand, I think now thirty six thousand organizations over six years, and uh, a lot of it, you know, some of those methods uh, were something I had actually done in the late two thousands. So I, I just uh, I love that, and I, I think. The reason why I got support from so many people to do that when I was a tripwire was that it really fell into that category of helping elevate the visibility of the company. Um, it was helping create awareness of what we thought was a market for the product. In that case, it was really around, it was a thesis that so much of security could be solved by better operational processes, like configuration management, configuration control, and so forth. Mm. And so I think what I benefited from, and I certainly what I'm so grateful for now is, you know, I think those type of roles for any company executive 
where they get to really hone their expertise and talk about their expertise more widely is something that's so valuable because it does you know, elevate the visibility of not just that person, uh, but uh, their companies as well. Yeah, I think there are so many great examples of this where you know, the CEO of the company, uh, the CTO of the company, they're, they're recognized as an expert. And uh, so when they're invited to talk, it's really... You know, the company benefits because people associate the person with with the company. Um, and so it's fantastic because it not only helps the company, but it certainly helps that person, right? Because it will help that person in every other endeavor they have for the rest of their lives. So I, I think it's one of those activities that have such high payoff, both for the individual as for the organization. Yeah, I totally agree. It helps kind of create, I mean, they call it thought leadership, whatever else, but like generally you're out there, you're helping kind of establish best practices and principles and patterns and then getting other people to, to sort of follow along. And interesting that you sort of self-identify, right, as a sort of like researcher and, and author. That's like, that's how you define yourself, you know, plus programmer. But I'm guessing it felt like the thing that you wanted to do, it was kind of felt natural, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, I'm just kind of thinking of other people who have uh, done this so well, you know, I'm thinking about Adam Jacob from uh, Chef Edith Harbaugh from uh, Launch Darkly, uh, the gentleman from Trello, uh, Michael Pryor, right? Uh, DHH from Basecamp, right? I mean, these are all people that we identify as experts at their craft. Sure. And, and so, you know, what is the value that they create, <laughs> you know, just by being good at what they do and uh, sharing their learning? So I think th- those are people that I think have done a tremendous job. What they've done is created such value for the software community as well as for their organizations. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we have to get out and talk about these things or else, you know, everyone has to f- solve it themselves. So if we kind of get out there and we, we share it, then we can all build and kind of stand on each other's shoulders to get there faster. So, okay. And, I mean, you've written a handful of books, right? So like it, this first one when you were at Tripwire and then is when you left Tripwire, is that when you introduced the sort of Phoenix project or what was? Yeah, right. So that was in 2013. So after I left Tripwire, I, I worked essentially full time on that book for, about three years. Uh, so it came out in 2013 and I had two uh, fellow co-authors. And then uh, two years after that came the DevOps Handbook with uh, Jez Humble and John Willis and Patrick Dubois. And then uh, I got to work on the Accelerate book with uh, Dr. Forsgren and Jez Humble again. And then uh, Unicorn Project came out uh, November of last year. So it's definitely the work I love, the long form writing style. Um, it's kind of a frustrating journey when you know it takes, you know, on average for me, about three years to... Uh, Work on a book, <laughs> so, but it's one that uh, there's something about it that uh, I love just because you know I think for even these days you know the best way to convey complicated ideas is through the long form writing. It's not something you can do through a blog post or uh, in a talk. Sure, it does take you know some cases right eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand words to try to make an argument, make a case, <laughs> kind of proactively handle all the objections, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's something about that that I really love. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell he wrote. Uh, a lot of great books. Um, uh, what's the book about? Ten thousand hours and uh, outliers or something. Outliers, like right? And then the, the book he wrote before that, which is uh, uh, the even better book, the Tipping Point. <laughs> the Tipping Point. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. uh, he. Re- I heard an interview of him, and he said uh, he hates writing books. Uh, he actually loves um, writing for the New Yorker, right? Where it's you know it's an article you can write and ship, <laughs> you know, within a you know in a month, right? And, so I can definitely understand where he's coming from, but I definitely like kind of the the longer form writing style, even though it does take a lot longer and is more of a, a rocky process. Yeah, and with these books, I mean, you really helped kind of establish DevOps as a thing, right? I mean, like you know, before some of the, you know, so obviously some of the companies like Puppet and Chef were, were helping sort of build tooling around it, but I think you know a lot of your work helped crystallize the best practices and make it like, kind of gave people an introduction without having to like go and play with technology they could re- kind of read and understand a bit about it like how, how do you sort of think about devops and its evolution yeah i think what the phoenix project did um, i mean I'm, I'm so delighted by the way the devops movement has adopted the phoenix project as a way to signal like this is a problem that we're trying to solve and I think what it did really well was really portray how bad life was for everybody, not just for infrastructure and operations, but for security <laughs> and for development and the businesses that we served. And what it allowed people to do is uh, when people read it, in general, you know, people's reaction is, holy cow, that's us. <laughs> and you know, that was really, it was designed that way. And I think the reason why I was successful in doing that was that it was modeled after one of my favorite books, which is 
The Goal by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt. And uh, so this is a famous book that was written in 1984. And it was a novel about a manufacturing plant manager who had to fix his cost and due date issues in 90 days. Otherwise, they would shut the plant down. And I remember reading this in the late 90s. And I've never worked in manufacturing. I've certainly never uh, run a manufacturing plant. But after reading this book, right, it was a, it was it was astounding. I mean, it just uh, it was an amazing story, uh, and you couldn't help but feel the plight of uh, these people who are struggling to keep the plant open. And you know, uh, reading the book, uh, there was just no doubt that the lessons in these books were relevant to technology as well. So we studied that book for a decade to try to elicit the same reactions where uh, instead of manufacturing people, it'd be technology people saying, oh my gosh, this is happening to us like right now. So I think that's what uh, uh, I'd like to think that it helped accelerate the adoption of DevOps and certainly the awareness of DevOps. And I think one of the things that I'm just really delighted by is that uh, non-technology people can read it and say, oh, (laughs) this is not a technology problem. Uh, This is a business problem that impacts me and really in the ideal right I should be a part of the solution to help make a better way so yeah that's interesting I also love that like it was inspired by this other book it's like the reverse engineer something that you thought was really good and apply it to a new category right like that's I mean that's how enterprise ready started I was like oh I think <laughs> user you know onboarding is really great and I think that you know all these different you know sites that I liked were good. And I was like, I should do something similar for enterprise software. And then when you take what's out there and you apply it to different categories, I love that. Oh, for sure. I love that saying, uh, there are no new solutions underneath the sun, just uh, old solutions apply to new domains. <laughs> and I think uh, in that journey, uh, one of my co-authors, George Spafford and I, we actually took three graduate courses in constraints management, <laughs> just uh, getting trained up so that uh, we were, I wouldn't say expert, but we were certainly more than conversant in terms of how that book was constructed and uh, the underpinning theories in the book. Oh, interesting. I think about it this way too. Like, Obviously, there's a movement more recently called like DevSecOps, right? And this whole idea of like shift left. And, but really, I mean, you came at DevOps from a security angle, right? Like that's kind of one of the main reasons that you thought it was important. Like when you sort of think about DevOps and security in this intersection, do you think it's DevSecOps is very different? You think it's kind of the same thing? Like how do you view the evolution around that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, in the early days of the DevOps handbook, I actually proposed to one of my co-authors, John Willis, uh, hey, we should call it the DevSecOps handbook. And, and he just puked at it. He's like, yeah, we don't need to rename it. Like, uh, does that joke, right? It's like, uh, it's biz, dev, yeah. QA, sec, ops, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> regulations, et cetera. Um, and it, he was adamant that it really should be the DevOps handbook. And I, I thought he made a very persuasive case. We weren't trying to uh, change DevOps. We were just trying to explain it. And I think the reason that I found that so compelling was that it was supposed to be a very broad umbrella for everybody to participate, whether it's the product manager, product owners, developers, QA, operations, security, et cetera. And all of those you know, were kind of addressed in the book. Uh, but what's funny is that uh, John Willis uh, is working on a book called, I think it might be called the DevSecOps Handbook, just because now he's super interested in security and actually wants to dr- go in even deeper in terms of what are the specific practices that you can bring to bear you know, to get the amazing outcomes as you, you know, shift security continually to the left. And so, yeah, I think security is like one of these professions that is being radically changed by DevOps. That it used to be the case that, you know, say 15 years ago, that if it wasn't in the GRC tool like Archer <laughs> or uh, whatever you kind of uh, maintain your control catalog and risk frameworks, right? It didn't exist. These days, if it doesn't exist in Jira or your, you know, your work management tool for developers, it doesn't exist. I mean, everything is really centering around developers. And it just changes everything, right? Um, how we do static analysis, how we do uh, dynamic analysis, you know, everything about that is, and the cadence of you know, when you do security activities is really changing. So just a long answer short is DevOps is changing everybody's jobs in the technology value stream. And uh, security is probably the biggest amongst it. And I just I I actually agree with John Willis six years ago, right? We'll just call it DevOps and you know it's really a signal of everything except for the bad ways of doing things, right? We'll just put all the bad ways of doing things and bad habits, we'll call it non-DevOps, and we'll call the good ways, better ways, DevOps. <laughs> That's kind of the way I think about it in my head. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I think it was GitLab publishes their like BizOps, you know, sort of practices, and there, there's definitely these different guides or, or strategies around how to operationalize 
you know different aspects of technology companies, right? For sure. And then to your point, there's so I've always thought about this idea that like security will intersect so many different categories, right? If it's like if you think about AI, like there'll be some kind of AI sec, and there'll be some kind of you know intersection between security and like whatever the next kind of you know crypto and all all the everything will always have a security aspect to it. But to your point, I guess everything will will likely always have a dev intersection as well, right? Yep. Like there's no categories that are not going to be impacted by how developers interact with the technology or with the problem because you know software really is eating the world. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, without a doubt. And that's a really tough job. But I think one of the things that's definitely clear is security has to be part of everyone's daily work. <laughs> if it's not showing up in the tools and productivity systems that developers use every day, you know, something is wrong. And, and so it was back to the sort of that what are the tools and infrastructure that developers use in daily work? Security has to be showing up there. And if not, you know, the outcomes are not going to be so great. Yeah. And it really is particularly, I mean, you see like the we're we're talking on a day when like every you know major technology exec is like testifying in front of Congress and it's about <laughs> data privacy and data security and all these things. And it's like it's so core to our personal lives and our, you know, work lives that, you know, we all have to be thoughtful about it. So and that's I mean, that's changed. Like the level of security that people understand, I think, has changed in the last twenty years, right? Oh, and there's so much I don't know. I mean, like one of the big questions I left unanswered in the Unicorn Project is like, how, how do we treat um, data and secure it? So I think one of the the problems I've been very riveted around is, and, and one could argue is even bigger than DevOps is around data. So what the DevOps movement rightly pointed out was it was so hard to get code to where it needed to go, which was in production, so that customers are getting value. So that's a big problem. But uh, there's also this orthogonal problem around data, which is how do you get data to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of you know people who manipulate and use data in their daily work to make better decisions. And that can often take you know months or quarters to get because they're often data is often stuck in systems of records or data warehouses. And you know, if you change one schema, you potentially break every schema in the enterprise. <laughs> and so and so it's, it's a very dangerous activity. And so Somewhere between thirty and fifty percent of employees use or manipulate data in their daily work, so it is a huge problem. And so, in the Unicorn Project, it really is uh, a big part of the book is about exploring kind of what does that look like when you're really making the best use of what you know about customers and markets and so forth. Right? Data is the new oil, uh, like the saying goes. Uh, but the one question that is left completely unaddressed, and, I, and, and maybe when I have more time, I actually want to collaborate with some security experts and say, all right, what does it look like <laughs> when you have data about customers and potentially every developer can discover it and access it and use it to uh, do their work better and make better decisions uh, on behalf of the customer? Like, how, how do you secure that? Right? How do you give them enough information that we can actually improve the quality of decisions being made and yet not compromise uh, data privacy for consumers or whoever, right, on the transactions, on, on, et cetera? So I, I think... I would personally love to get more clarity in terms of you know what are the ways to think about the problem that can make this uh, manageable and you know so we can actually with a straight face say that we are doing what's best for the consumer. Yeah, it's a really complicated problem and to your point I think that question has become much more relevant in the last like 4 or 5 years than it was, <laughs> you know, prior. And I, I always sort of say I think that there's this the relationship that enterprises have with the data that they touch and collect, I think it's really changed in the last few years, where I think enterprises or organizations used to think they owned every bit of data that they would touch or collect. And now I think that the relationship has shifted from one of ownership to sort of stewardship or custodian of. Custodianship, right? yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that really, to your point, like it has a ton of downstream effects in terms of, well, now they're responsible for for being the the custodian of this data, and how do they make sure that it's treated properly, and that you know if someone's not misusing it, and in any use is done in a way that is not only secure but potentially even socially responsible and socially aware, right? Yeah, super interesting. Right at the time of this recording, there are a whole bunch of people testifying before Congress, <laughs> right? That yeah. they're probably making certain assertions uh, that uh, they're being uh, good stewards uh, of data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of data that that enterprise software companies end up having, right? And that you know that the or if it's you know it's on prem, and it's a lot of data that's running through these applications that are produced by us. And so, you know, we need to 
think about you know how do we handle data and how do our applications that we deliver handle and, and simplify you know true data custodianship. Yes. Yes, I look forward to more clarity on this problem, personally speaking. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see. I like that you're going to dive into it because I think you know you do a good job of sort of getting deep into a subject matter and trying to explore the different options and and coming up with some best practices that we can all look for. So that would be very valuable to the ecosystem. <laughs> right on. And so, where do you see yourself going next? Like, is it more writing, more researching? You know, are you ever going to start another company again? What What do you plan on? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm uh, working on these days. I mean, so my area of passion for the last seven years, six years, has been uh, studying how DevOps is being incorporated and adopted, uh, not by the fangs, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Googles, uh, but by, not by the unicorns, right, but by the horses. Large, complex organizations that have been around for decades or even centuries. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books I've read uh, is by Dr. Carlotta Perez, who you know, explains that you know, when you have these breakthroughs in technology, that's pioneered by, say, the tech giants. You have this boom phase, uh, you have a bust, you have a period of incredible regulation <laughs> as, this, as society comes to grips of like uh, what to do with this new technology. And then uh, typically what happens is like a five-decade golden age that's fueled not by financial capital, um, in other words, not VCs, not investors, but by production capital. So in other words, uh, organizations that are the largest brands across every industry vertical, taking the lessons learned from the tech giants and using it to compete and survive in the marketplace. And so the, this technical revolution is uh, one of five that has happened over the last 300 years. So it's you know, the age of steam, the age of rail, the age of heavy machinery, the age of uh, oil and gas, um, the age of mass production. And so this is uh, the fifth revolution and so it's been so exciting to run this conference called the DevOps Enterprise Summit since 2014. And you know, over the years, we've had two, three hundred organizations present, um, you know, their experience reports of what was the business problem they started to solve, uh, what's the industry they compete in, <laughs> where did they start, and why, what did they do, what were the outcomes. And you know, so let's see. I'll just go through the financial verticals. It's uh, you know, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, uh, Barclays, which was founded in the year 1634, which predates the invention of paper cash. <laughs> you know, BBVA, um, Jaguar Land Rover, BMW, Chrysler Fiat, Nordstrom, Target, uh, Nationwide Insurance. Right? You know, so you know, military agencies, you know, government regulators. Um, so it's been so rewarding to see these leaders, you know, create these rebellions. Trying to overthrow an ancient powerful order, you know, who is often quite happy to keep doing things the same way they've been doing for the last 30, 40 years. And to see them succeed, and often they're being promoted. <laughs> you know, essentially, to me, that's an indication that the organization recognizes that they have helped their organizations win, that uh, they have the best long term interests of the organization at heart, and they want them to do more of it. And so uh, that has been the most rewarding thing. Uh, you know, that I've been able to do is really uh, study this community. And, uh, you know, so we've been doing two conferences a year and holy cow, COVID definitely changed that. So we you know, ran our first virtual conference a month ago and holy cow, I, I told everyone around me, never in my entire career have I done anything uh, with such time urgency and not knowing anything of value <laughs> about technical delivery models, Cost models, revenue models, value proposition models, but uh, I'm so delighted that it was, you know, I think the best program we ever put together. Um, but I think it, the reason behind it was that the mission goes on, and you know, the mission really is to help these technology leaders succeed and um, create this community that is helping each other succeed. So, and and why is that important? I, because I have this conviction based on the work of Dr. Collada Perez, who actually presented at the conference uh, last month that. As much wealth as the tech giants have created, it will be eclipsed by the the wealth that will be created over the next fifty years. So the the previous twenty years, you know, has been a period of incredible wealth generation, but also uh, wealth inequality. Right, the gap between rich and poor keeps growing, and you know that's what's happened in every one of these technical revolutions, where uh, there is a lot of creative destruction, and you know what eventually happens, uh, in fact, uh, she even posits that you know, so much of the social unrest and the rise of populism is caused by uh, the people who have been hurt by this, all this creative destruction, offshoring, uh, outsourcing, dislocation, and so forth. And all these things eventually get addressed you know, in the golden ages that come next, when you know, essentially every industry starts adopting these new technologies 
it basically incorporates technology into the core strategy and operations of the companies. And that is what actually brings back more equality into society. That's where you see the advances, uh, it's the societal gains, and it creates the tide that lifts all boats and increases the standard of living for everybody. So I just think this is such a, an important thing that's so much larger than DevOps. It's really about you know how do we really exploit this technology across all of the economy and society, just like we did for you know, the age of mass production. A uh, hundred years ago, there were a hundred car startups in Detroit. <laughs> and as much as wealth that was created then, right, that was actually dwarfed by you know, post-World War II, where it was a combination of you know, the automobile combined with the interstate highway systems, combined with the revolution in supply chains. Right? That is what generated you know, the greatest economic expansion you know, the world has seen. And so I think you know, that's what hopefully we can look forward to in the, the next decades to come. Yeah, that's actually super interesting. And so is that one, I, I love this thesis, it's actually not one that I've heard anyone else really talk about. So one, it's rooted in sort of these, the historical analysis of these transformations. And then two, the uh, the positive outlook that like this is going to have a massive positive impact over the next 50 years, you know, or some 40, I call it a couple decades. Yeah. If we think about the, the rate of change, at least it's going to be a couple of decades, as this becomes sort of the new normal and what was a like secret of success, you know, <laughs> or like it was a, it was, oh, the, the first movers only, they are the only ones who knew how to do this stuff. And so they got to collect all the advantage early on. Once it sort of goes everywhere, then everybody is competing with a, a more equal playing field. Is that sort of it? Like more, just more competition comes around? Absolutely. That um, The productivity advantages um, that are created by using software is now recognized everywhere. And it's not just a back office function, but it's part of, you know, it's about value creation, right? Um, customer acquisition, customer retention, you know, achieving the mission. Absolutely. And so the art of software is not just for software companies. It becomes a core competency of you know, every organization. Yeah. And it's interesting. That, I mean, I totally believe that. And, I, and it makes sense to me. Um, and I guess the like, pushback is like, people are like, well, we don't want to become a software company. It's like, well, like, people wanted to be, stay artisanal <laughs> you know, bread making, but like, it is better off when you know, like, uh, there was a little bit easier to produce it more widely. Or you know, there's advantages in sort of, once the sort of mechanization of this new technology gets to everyone, it applies to all these different industries, then it's more broadly beneficial to society rather than being sort of siloed just to the like, you know, initial early mover on it. Yeah, I'm thinking like uh, if you talk to people at Tesla, would they say they're really a software company? No, they're they're an automobile company. And yet you know, one of their core competencies is definitely software that is a key competitive advantage to other auto manufacturers. If you go to SpaceX, right, are they a software company? I think no, they're an orbital delivery company, right? Uh, which, you know, uh, software is definitely a core competency that is, you know, overturning that entire space transport market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would expect if you go to Nike or Adidas, you know, they would say the same thing, right? We are a sports apparel company or et cetera. But increasingly, you know, they're all doing billions of dollars of commerce directly to customers, bypassing retailers. And that is a pure software endeavor. And yet, you know, I don't think they would call themselves software companies, but it is a competency they must have or they must develop in order to compete and win. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually think like much in the way that these software companies have made the evolution into, you know, and figured out DevOps and figured out other things, I think security becomes a really important part of that as well because everyone will sort of, I think in the future, there will be many companies that are broken by the fact that they did security so poorly and it will <laughs> become a lesson that people learn where you're like, well, in order to grow this company successfully for the long term, like we have to do security right from day one and, yes. and think about it all the time. It's really interesting. This sort of the idea that this will spread and this will become the dominant way of growing any kind of company. If I can just add one piece of evidence, um, yeah, please to support your thesis. So um, your thesis, by the way, I was just sort of <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm simply parroting it back as I sort of mix it with the things I've thought about. But yeah, this is cool. I mentioned uh, John Willis, uh, co-author on the DevOps Handbook, and independently, very peculiarly, uh, we both read the. Uh, Testimony of the Equifax CEO, <laughs> and it was uh, mm. it was interesting, right? Um, in preparation before I read that, I actually read the uh, testimony of 
as Jeffrey Skilling, uh, the CEO of Enron, <laughs> as he was testifying, I just want to see if were they harder or easier on the Equifax uh, CEO. And I think it was actually the former CEO. And in some ways, I thought he got off easy, right? Essentially, he said it was a technology failure and a, it was a combination of human error and a technology failure. And I think in, in the future, it's not going to be that easy to be able to talk your way out of it. Mm. <laughs> that essentially uh, it is part of your fiduciary responsibility is part of, uh, you know, you are obligated as a person in charge of the organization of protecting data just as you are about protecting human lives and that people won't be able to be fooled <laughs> by saying, hey, I did my job, but, you know, some poor person, right, they made a human error and there was some sort of technology failure and therefore I'm off the hook. I just, I think uh, they will be much harsher on the next instance and in that uh, re- regulation and kind of our expectations of people's true responsibilities of security. I mean, that that is inevitable. And also predicted by Dr. Carlotta Perez, right? That re-regulation, that intense re-regulation of this new industry and technology. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of appearing in front of Congress, like the congressmen, congresswomen will need to become <laughs> more technologically competent as well. And we'll have to know more about security and know about like, you know, the responsibility. It's just, it'll be pervasive in, in where we go. And uh, I think it, I mean it is to this to some degree, and every time we watch one of these folks testify, we we see that they the other side is ill-equipped to respond to their answers. They don't really understand the context, and so the you know there's not enough depth, there's not enough comprehension within most of them, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, by the way, I just uh, what I noticed in both of the testimonies uh, is the people doing the questioning are actually experienced litigators, so they're very good at argumentation. But they're just, like, you know, in the case of uh, the Equifax one, it's like, oh, you totally pulled that punch, or I mean, you inadvertently, like, you you had them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Yeah. One question away, right, from uh, what would have been a, yeah, you know, I think an admission of uh, of something. I'm not. A lawyer, uh, but it is uh, to your point. I mean, I think you do notice you see the skill and experience that they're bringing to bear, and yet they're missing some knowledge <laughs> that I think they could would have uh, could have led to a different outcome. But man, I'm not excited for lawyers to know more about technology. That's not going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid, though, that uh, those days are coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's inevitable. Amazing, Gene. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I really do appreciate it. You know, you're, you're, and thank you for your contributions to the entire ecosystem and DevOps and everything that we're doing. I, I always pay homage to uh, the folks that came before Replicated because you know we really came into an industry that was very quickly automating, and so the work that you've done to sort of accelerate that is, is hugely valuable. And, and I definitely appreciate it personally. And I know the rest of the ecosystem values the work that you've done. So thank you. Oh, hey, uh, my pleasure. And uh, congratulations on all your successes. And I look forward to hearing more great news about uh, uh, you and team in the future. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.